This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize. Learn more by visiting the following website, adultliteracy.xprize.org. In the education world, there's a lot of debate about what conditions support the most effective change for K-12 students. For example, some say that top-down, district-based change yields the best results, while others argue that grassroots, bottom-up change that involves external stakeholders like parents in the community is really the only way to ensure that everyone buys in. But maybe it's less a question of top-down versus bottom-up, and more of a question of what environments support educational and innovation more, high-income communities or low-income communities. In order to spark some interesting debate, we brought together two representatives from those two worlds. On the one side, we had Alejandro Gacartigas, who is the founder of Springboard Collaborative, which seeks to close the achievement gap and end summer reading loss by engaging parents and training teachers to better support students. And on the other side, Max Ventilla, the mastermind behind Alt School, a Bay Area-founded micro-independent school that currently charges more than $20,000 a year in tuition. Was there any bloodshed in this debate, Mary Jo? Not really, but there was certainly some disagreement. (laughs) And with that, here we go. I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Michael Winters. Happy to be back on the show after a brief hiatus. Welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Let's get started. One-to-one rollout involves more than devices, argues Ross Friebel and Rick Stout, two administrators at Onslow County School District in North Carolina. These contributors shared this week three crucial components of their own one-to-one rollout that aren't as flashy as devices, but ensure that the devices are getting used and used in a productive way. According to the gentleman, a successful one-to-one rollout depends on whether you track district-wide readiness, bring in an online collaboration system where teachers at different schools can work together virtually, and outline a long-term distribution plan, with four years being the minimum in their minds. We often report on EdTech accelerators at EdSurge. These are programs that offer young companies mentoring, working space, connections, and crucially, an investment in return for equity. Since the Imagine K-12 EdTech Accelerator opened its doors here in Silicon Valley in 2011, over a dozen other organizations have popped up around the world. Our editorial team has created a handy infographic showing U.S. accelerators, upcoming application deadlines, and the maximum direct investment from each program. You can check out that image at edsurge.com. And disclosure, Imagine K-12 is an investor in EdSurge. What does blended learning look like in the Buckeye State? The Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation took a stab at answering that question with its report, State of Opportunity, the Status and Direction of Blended Learning in Ohio. The report notes that 58% of 211 schools in Ohio surveyed use some type of blended learning. And one note, the rotational model is most popular for K-5, through while high schools tend to prefer the a la carte model. If you've been on the App Store recently, chances are you've noticed an educational app or two on the top charts. But do those apps provide the information necessary for a teacher to use them successfully? A research team recently undertook a study of nearly 200 language and literacy-focused apps to understand the mismatch between the information that parents and teachers need and what they can actually find on the App Store. 
their findings. Although developers often do not provide information on how the content in the apps are developed, there's plenty of guidance for parents about how to use the program once it's downloaded. And there is considerable diversity among the types of programs that are available to download. New Schools Venture Fund has chosen 14 schools that will receive its Catapult 2015 investments, the first cohort of the Catapult program. New Schools announced the initiative this summer as part of its Innovative Schools strategy to create public schools that emphasize personalized learning and student agency and lead other schools to make similar positive changes. The investments either go to administrative teams for a year of planning to start a new school or to schools that open this year that hope to sustain their models and further grow through research and development. The eight schools in the planning stage will each receive $100,000, and the six previously launched schools will each receive $200,000 over the next year. Applications for next year's investments open on November 10th. And speaking of new school venture fund, now it's time for... Uh, well, actually, for the first time in a very long time, this week we didn't report on any kachings. Is the EdTech bubble bursting? <laughs> well, uh, that's, a, that's a debate for another podcast. Okay. But anyway, a couple of money-related news items from this week. First, Reach Capital, the for-profit investment fund that spun out of New School Venture Fund, officially launched this week. The group has $53 million in funds to invest and plans to put up to $3 million at a time into Series A and Series B rounds. Nine companies have already received investment from the fund, including Better Lesson, Schoolzilla, and Newzilla. And disclosure, New School Venture Fund is an investor in EdSurge. The other money-related news story this week was Pearson. Pearson's stock took a tumble on Wednesday after the company lowered its profit forecasts for the year. The stock fell 16% on Wednesday and another 4% today on Thursday. Well, that's it for the news bits. We'll move on to our deep dive after this brief word from our sponsor. We're willing to bet that if you are listening to this podcast, you care about education. Educating kids matters. But here at EdSurge, we care about educating adults too, particularly when they lack some of the skills that many of us learned in elementary school. Know who else cares about adult learning? Cares so much that they are offering a $7 million bonus for doing it right? The Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize presented by Dollar General Literacy Foundation. The foundations are running an X Prize competition for teams to develop mobile software to help low literate adults increase their reading skills. If you want to help the 36 million adults who read at or below a third grade level and you're into developing mobile apps, here's what you need to do. Put together a team, apply, build your app, and change the world. Go to the website adultliteracy.xprize.org to sign up. There are 36 million adults and their families whose lives you can change for the better. And 7 million isn't too bad either. The registration deadline is December 10th, so sign up now. Alright, we've arrived at the time you've all been waiting for. Do Alejandro Lacartigas and Max Ventilla overlap in their thoughts about how to improve student learning? Or just how dramatically do their views differ? On the one hand, you've got Alejandro, whose Springboard Collaborative initiative is grassroots and works with low-income families. On the other hand, you've got tech-savvy Max Ventilla, a former Google engineer who founded a school model that's personalized and services families that are able to pay a pretty high amount of tuition. 
While more of a conversation than a debate, the following recording will offer you perspectives into where these kingpins of educational startups, who are both powerful in their own rights, diverge. And the biggest question of the hour, where does educational innovation happen most easily? Within low-income schools and communities or within high-income schools and communities? Or perhaps more importantly, where should it happen? Okay, here we go. Interesting for you. Okay, so um, we're just going to start out with you, Max. So what I'd like you to do is why don't you give me a two-minute introduction. Uh, tell me about who you are and what alt school is. What are the origins of it? Where did it come from? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Max Ventilla. I'm the founder at Alt School, and Alt School is really a new model for what a school system could look like. Uh, very much powered by technology, but um, all about superpowering educators and students and families in real-world classrooms to um, to have a modern experience. And uh, and so what that looks like is. Um, students learning in kind of small groups and uh, as a whole class, but where we can really tie what kids are doing to their own profile as a learner, to what milestones uh, they're working on, to how they learn best, to what they're interested in, and uh, and where we very much are about changing the role of an educator. So we don't have administrators in our schools. Um, we give a tremendous amount of autonomy to, you know, the teaching team that's responsible for kids, but we also um, expect that each child, each parent, um, each coworker is really satisfied by the experience and, and that we can measure what is the effect of, uh, of kids being in school according to common core measures, but also other standards like social emotional learning standards. And, and it's all about not a certain model of education, but how do you create um, an ecosystem in which um, change is possible, in which uh, you can measure the effect of change, and where most importantly, when something is working in one classroom, you have that basic interoperability because of technology, because of culture, to um, to adopt that change elsewhere. And uh, and we've started in a very different way than kind of many uh, ed players, which is um, really to to do everything. So. You know, we have 50 engineers and we have 50 educators and we have 50 operators in a 150-person company. And we operate seven schools ourselves. They're kind of private schools because that's the easiest place to start. You know, two and a half years in, uh, we'd still be working on our first public school if that's where we forced ourselves to begin. But ultimately, this is about creating an ecosystem in which, you know, two or three years from now, we can invite other folks, charter school operators, public school educators, international schools to uh, open a new different kind of school that's that's more flexible, that's more personalized, and that ultimately is not only more modern, but able to kind of keep up with the changes in the world at large to prepare kids for what they're actually going to experience. So Alejandro, same question to you. Two minutes spiel, who you are, what is Springboard Collaborative? Give me the brass tacks. Sounds good. Uh, I'm Alejandro. I'm the CEO and founder of Springboard Collaborative. Our mission is to close the reading achievement gap by coaching teachers, training parents, and incentivizing learning so that our scholars have the requisite skills to access life opportunities. As the leader of an organization focused on family engagement, it's only right that I start with a shout out to my parents. Uh, my dad's a Chilean playwright. He uh, was taken as a political prisoner in the 70s. Uh, when Pinochet overthrew the government, he wrote a play called Libertad, Libertad, which didn't go over so hot. He was more fortunate than most to make it out alive and was exiled to Paris where he met my mom. 
my mom is one of 12, 12 kids in Puerto Rico, first in her family to go to college. Ended up getting a graduate school scholarship in Paris where she met my dad. Uh, the two formed a, a theater group of exiled Latin Americans performing social justice theater. I traveled the world performing. My sister was born in Colombia. I popped out in the Netherlands. Uh, but eventually, uh, my family made the decision that even though it meant giving up on their personal dreams, uh, they wanted to immigrate to the U.S. so that my sister and I could have uh, access to better educational opportunities. Growing up in a household that was short on financial resources but long on ambition taught me two things. Uh, one is that a child's education means so much more than just their schooling. Uh, and the second is that parents' love for their children is the single greatest and most underutilized natural resource in education. After graduating from Harvard in 2009, I joined Teach for America, moved to Philadelphia to make my best attempt at being a first grade teacher. In my classroom, I was bowled over by the fact that it took my kids until the end of November, 83 days into the school year, for their reading levels to finally catch up to where they had been before the summer. I dug into the research and saw that across low-income communities, uh, there's a, a three-month regression in, in reading summer after summer. These regressions compound annually to the point that two-thirds of the achievement gap we see in high school is attributable to summer learning loss in elementary school. But what none of that could answer for me is why are those losses particular to low-income communities? Mm. It's not like kids out in the suburbs are in school for any longer than my students, mm -hmm. and yet they don't have the same regression. Mm -hmm. Why? Over time, I realized that summer learning loss is symptomatic of a deeper problem, uh, which is that low-income parents have been left out of the process of educating their kids. Reality is that children spend 75% of their waking hours outside of the classroom, and yet our nation does shockingly little to capture any educational value from that time for low-income kids. Uh, our system treats their families as liabilities rather than as assets. If you picture a child's time as an orange, uh, their classroom experience is a relatively small wedge of that orange, and for some reason, our, our education system is fixated on squeezing more and more juice from that wedge. I'm interested in the question of how we squeeze any juice at all from the rest of the orange. So long story short, I founded Springboard to tackle America's literacy problem at its root. Our primary offering uh, is an intensive five-week summer program that combines daily reading instruction for pre-K through third graders weekly workshops training parents to teach reading at home, and an incentive structure through which we award learning tools to families from books to tablets in proportion to their kids' reading progress. Since launch, three years ago, we grew from 40 kids to 2,000 uh, in Philadelphia and in the Bay Area. Uh, last summer, our kids replaced what would have been a three-month reading loss with a 3.3-month reading gain. They came back to school in September, having more than doubled their annual reading progress. In schools with fewer than 10% of parents showing up for report card conferences, our weekly family training workshops average 94% attendance. We don't do that by hiring superstar teachers to work their magic every summer. The model's about helping school communities get more from the people and assets that they already have. In each of our partners, we train their existing teachers to engage the families of their struggling readers in order to accomplish more together than any of them could individually. Alongside the geographic growth, we're growing the product line to include school year interventions and lighter touch tech-enabled offerings. By training parents and teachers to collaborate, Springboard's putting kids on a path that closes a reading achievement gap by fourth grade. It took a long time for the education field to embrace the idea that all children can learn. 
it's Springboard's ambition and our charge to prove that all parents can teach. Fantastic. Thank you for um, that, both of you. Uh, even though you both went over two minutes, I'm not going to be angry about that. This is not a typical debate. Um, uh, clearly, both of your initiatives come from very personal places of initiative. And when it comes to improving education for students, which I think all three of us can agree is something that has motivated both of your initiatives, where do you think proactive change should come from and is coming from most strongly? Is it from the parents and the community outside of a school, or is it from within the school itself? Alejandra, I'm going to let you take that one first. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, although I don't know that, that it's an either-or. Uh, where I begin is, is thinking where children spend their time. Uh, children, as I mentioned earlier, children spend 75% of their waking hours outside of the classroom. Uh, so, of course, that, that's going to be the, the largest influence in, in a child's life. Uh, I think that in high-income communities, it's well understood that a child's uh, education uh, is, a, is, is a much larger thing than, than their schooling. And I find it problematic that when we think about uh, low-income children, we, uh, we talk about education and schooling uh, as, as if they were synonymous, as if they were the, the same thing. Uh, and we speak about time as, uh, at home, uh, not as a place where learning can happen, but rather as, uh, uh, as a liability that, that we need to control for. Uh, so in, in my mind, uh, we will not close the achievement gap in America uh, until uh, we bring low-income parents into the process uh, of, uh, of generating educational outcomes. Uh, I, and and I, th I think the school plays an integral role in, in doing that. Uh, but I, I think that, and, and I do think that every school has already the resources they need in order to close the gap. The biggest latent potential that we're not activating right now is, uh, is at home. Okay, Max, your thoughts? Well, so first off, I mean, I think it needs to come from all sides. This is an absolutely enormous problem. And, and education, you know, our schools are kind of a microcosm for all the problems in our society, whether it's governance problems or, um, or family problems or health problems. And so uh, it needs to come from everywhere. And it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we kind of took the path that we did, which is to say, like, we, we want to be a kind of R&D engine for education. It's not because we think that all you need is a bunch of technology and the problem solved. It's because we felt like there was an underinvestment there and there was a hurdle for people providing, you know, that piece of like a multi-many or a multifaceted solution. I think that when you look at 55 million K-12 students in the U.S., of which, you know, 50 million are in public schools, um, the education problems in the country are synonymous with the public school problems. Like they're, that's where it's at. And public schools are run by politicians at at some point. Once you get to the top of the ladder, and I think that there, um, you know, the political process that we have is completely broken. And we can blame ourselves, the voters. You know, we just it's acceptable for us to to reelect a politician who has presided over, presided over worsening schools, whether that's at the county level or the state level or the national level, in a way that, um, for example, like if 
if the economy has fallen apart on their watch at that jurisdiction, like they, they, they can't be reelected. Um, like we're at a point now where climate change is getting more lip service and actual effort and real planning than education. If you look at certainly the federal level, but even at the local and state level. So I ultimately think, you know, that that's one of the, the biggest areas for change is, you know, the, the average voter, um, especially, you know, come election time coming up saying like, I demand to hear about your education strategy in deciding whether or not to elect you. I demand to hear about your education progress in deciding whether or not to reelect you. Um, I don't see how kind of major change comes from anywhere else. At the same time, I'm not that hopeful that that's going to happen. And so, um, you know, I think that you need to find other avenues where you don't need massive, you know, political funding to, you know, get to critical mass. And so I, you know, I look at what, what we're doing, which is largely a kind of R&D play funded by, you know, venture capital um, or what Alejandro is doing, which is, um, you know, using the existing resources and, and, and going after an arena that's not as politicized, which is, you know, what's happening to these kids at home and during the summer. And, and I think that that's where you're going to see the quickest gains. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, in terms of that, you know, you referencing the different types of schooling systems out there, the political involvement in that, it sort of begs the question of when it comes to educational innovation, which is a term that I hate, but we'll use it for now. Um, when it comes to it happening the most easily, is that more possible within low-income schools and communities or within high-income schools and communities? I mean, you two sort of represent opposite ends of the spectrum. So, Max, I'll start with you. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, look, uh, the truth is it's the easiest in one of two settings. It's where you have the most resources or you have the least constraints, right? And so I think that there's there's enormous opportunity on both ends of the spectrum. I think that, um, that we haven't seen a great deal of innovation around the model in general. And, and I'm very excited about the idea of creating new models that ultimately could be adopted by any kind of school, but starting in the place where it's easiest, which is, you know, well-funded private schools. Um, and what's very different about all schools, we run, you know, a network of private schools, but the aim is to do much more. Most private schools are not trying to create a fundamentally new model or a new ecosystem that will include, you know, many, many more public schools in the future as private schools. We are, but we think it'll take a long time. And I, and I you know, it's something where, um, you know, in our recent round, all of the financing that wasn't coming from VCs was coming from folks like Mark Zuckerberg or, Berg or uh, Emerson Collective, which is run by Lorene Powell Jobs or, or um, you know, Pierre Omidyar, from essentially philanthropic motivations. Um, but what they saw was, hey, there's an opportunity to really innovate here um, with fewer constraints, with more resources. And if you can make it work in that ideal setting, then over time you can make it work in less and less ideal settings. And, and an analogy I would give is, imagine if you came to me and you said, I have a vision for a radically better doctor's office. And I said, awesome you know, go to Syria and work with doctors without borders. And you said, no, 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 that, like, that's, that's the advanced level. Like I get there, you know, in 10 years, um, once I kind of start 
uh, with the easiest possible place and then make it a little bit harder and a little bit harder until it's actually working everywhere. And by the way, if you look at technology, that's what happens broadly. Like Tesla starts with, you know, the Roadster and five years from now, they'll have a $35,000 car. Um, you know, uh, Facebook started at the Harvard campus. Right. And now they have, you know, a billion and a half users and are flying drones to provide Internet to, you know, rural farmers in Africa. It, it, I think it takes a long time to get there. But that's that's a really fruitful avenue that we basically have not pursued as an industry. So, Alejandro, do you think you should move your practice into uh, higher income communities then? <laughs> uh, no, that, that, that we, we've been deliberate. Our mission is to close the reading achievement gap. Uh, and and uh, so we're we're focusing our efforts where where they belong. Uh, as as our mission uh, kind of lays it out, we're supporting low income communities. Uh, I worry that uh, that building something that makes sense in uh, for wealthy families in in uh, Palo Alto and and, and other communities uh, affluent communities, translating that to North Philly uh, is. It's going to be an adventure. Uh, Max, you got your work cut out for you, and I'm, I'm curious to hear more about uh, what that what that actually looks like. Um, yeah, I struggle with the kids that are going to art school. Like those kids are the reason that those kids will will be successful in in their lives is not uh, is not art school. The reason that those kids will be successful in their lives is uh, because of their families, because of their wealth, because of their access to power. That's how uh, that's how kids in America do well. Um, and, and so I, I struggle with the, the assumption that by having like a, an optimized, uh, school experience, translating that into North Philly, that it's really going to change much for those, those children. Like again, with the, the orange analogy, like you, you can create the best school that will, that will squeeze as much productivity as possible from the 25% of time kids spend in that building, but you're not at all addressing uh, the enormity of children's time that is the primary influencer in, in their their lives. So I, I, I'm very curious to see how it plays out, and, and I think that there that, uh, that there's much to be optimized in, uh, in what a school building looks like and what it does. Until that day, uh, I think there's so much to gain from the resources that are already there, right? Like, the teachers that we have now are the teachers that we've got. The parents that we've got are the parents that we've got. The kids are the kids, and 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 between them, by working together, they're actually capable uh, of uh, of achieving outcomes that uh, that we've never thought possible within those within those communities. And then when it comes to the families, like they've learned the hard way, they've learned through their own experience just how critical it is for their child to. Uh, to have a, a stronger education than, than they did. No one knows better than, than they do. Um, so there's an enormous uh, uh, amount of, uh, uh, of pain and, and of concern uh, and, and of you know, love for their children that, that exists, but right now it, it has no productive uh, way uh, of contributing to that child's educational outcomes. Uh, so if we can harness that, that energy and equip families with the, the basic tools and resources that a teacher has in their classroom. There, there's, it's, it's, it's a quick win, and, and it's a lot of progress that, that can be made in any school community serving low-income kids. Max, do you have a response to that? 
Yeah, so, I mean, again, like, you have to pick your battles, right? Like, we're not, we're not trying to close the existing achievement gap, right? We are trying to create a new model for school that will apply not only to, uh, to wealthy communities, but also to low-income communities and international communities and, and, you know, diverse settings in the same way that, you know, you look at Montessori, like, it's a pretty great uh, approach to school, especially in the younger years. Well, it's 106 years old, you know, like, surely we can create some updated version of what can happen in school. And I, and I don't think that school is the be all end all for enabling kids to achieve their full potential, but it is a place where we spend a lot of time. It is a place where we spend a lot of resources. It's a place where you can, you can have a catalytic role in how a family orients towards, you know, their child. And, um, and, you know, I think that specifics help to kind of form the narrative. So, you know, one of the things that we're spending a lot of effort on is creating something that we call uh, learning progression. And it's it's essentially a dashboard where a teacher, but also the family and also the student themselves can basically look at, like, where is this child on, you know, a few dozen different dimensions that are going to matter in terms of their long-term happiness and success from, you know, can they read and are they good at, you know, uh, multiplication to can they manage conflict? Can they uh, can they persevere in the face of adversity? And um, and so that is an amazing tool for a teacher to kind of see where their child is, see where a child is at, and take advantage of things that have worked for certain types of students in the school setting. It's also an amazing tool for a parent to look at and say, oh, if I have a child who's really behind on uh, you know, their ability to manage conflict, here's some exercises I can do with them. Here's some behaviors that I can model as a parent. And nothing in what I've described is you know, going to work because a family lives in a nice three-bedroom apartment versus you know, uh, a, a dingy one-bedroom apartment. It has, it's, it's about a technical capability in the same way as um, you know, a rich person can use a GPS to get around and a poor person can use a GPS to get around. One of the problems that we have in education today is that in the absence of creating any real innovation in the basic approach to what happens in the traditional school, you resort to the timeless approach, which is to just positively student select and surround, you know, your kid with the wealthiest other kids you can because that worked in 1850 and that, that's going to work in 2050. And our hope is that not that we can kind of conceive of a better model, but we can create a network of people acting with more autonomy, but also more interoperability where you can, over a long period of time, surface what is a better way. And you don't just stop there. You keep improving and improving and improving. And so, you know, I couldn't agree more that, like, we need to fix what happens outside of schools to really improve education in this country. But... Uh, you know, I, I can't believe that that just kind of not not bringing technologies to bear on what happens inside schools or on what uh, what relationship a parent can have outside of school to what happened within the classroom isn't going to be enormously valuable. Max, do you ever worry, though, when critics use the term top down to refer to alt school, you know, saying that you're you maybe aren't consulting faculty, parents, students as much as you could have to design the model. Does that ever concern you about 
um, spreading old school's mission across the country? I mean, you couldn't be less top down than we are in running a school. Um, like we don't, we don't have a kind of standard model that we stamp out in every school. We're entirely built around trying to give autonomy to the actual teaching teams that are responsible for each classroom and allowing them to work in very different ways and being able to highlight across the network kind of what successes other people can build on. And, you know, I mean, it's like saying that, uh, you know, the internet is top down because you use a search engine to find something. It certainly is the case that we can create a shared set of incentives. And of course, there has to be um, some basic standards that everyone is agreeing with or, you know, we don't speak the same language and, and an engineer can't build something which is going to have broad applicability. Mm-hmm. But the aim is to give as much license to, you know, an, a, an individual teacher and ultimately to an individual student and an individual set of parents to really shape the experience for themselves. And that's both so that um, you can really provide a satisfying experience that meets each person, you know, at their needs. And so that you can end up with a system that is truly dynamic, where over time, you know, you are innovating at an accelerating rate instead of a decelerating rate. So, you know, top down is an anathema to us. Like we, we feel like that you failed out of the, the, the gates if you're trying to prescribe for, you know, every educator and every student what the experience should look like. Okay. Well, that being said, I mean, so, you know, top-down seems to have a weird, uh, bad reputation in our society, but bottom-up isn't always the best thing either. And Alejandro, I'm going to direct this question to you, which is that there are critics of grassroots community-based change because they say there are too many cooks in the student's kitchen and it causes change to become stagnant. You know, I've been a teacher and I've seen that sometimes when parents get too involved, it does hinder schools from having the freedom to experiment. So what are your thoughts about that? It's funny. So I, I, I think that we our approach is, I would admit that our approach is more top-down uh, perhaps than, than it is grassroots. Um, it, 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 to me, like, the, the way that we're seeing our, our impact playing out and, and how we want to steer it, the, the summer intervention has been the beachhead uh, that proves to school communities that they can author their own success with their own teachers, their own students, their own families. Together, they can accomplish things that they, they felt were impossible. And the summer proves that to them. Over time, we're seeing those school leaders uh, are now coming to us and asking, well, how can I embed the, those principles uh, of family engagement into how I operate my school. How can I run a school that, that is powered by effective family engagement? And what about what about those policymakers, superintendents, some of the people that Max was talking about earlier that are really at the top, you know, yep. making the big decisions? Those are the people we contract with. Uh, so the, the school district in Philadelphia has come to us uh, and they've asked us to develop that blueprint. What, is, what does it look like to operate a school uh, around the core principles uh, of effective family engagement in, in literacy? In order to, to close the achievement gap at the scale at which it exists, we, we do pursue the largest contracts we can with the largest school networks uh, that we can. Those are, the, those are our customers, the folks that have access to a budget uh, to, to make the work happen. Uh, at the school level, it's teachers engaging families around particular children. Uh, but the idea is to challenge the system to think of itself uh, uh, more more broadly and more deeply than, than what happens 
inside the four walls between 8 and 3 p.m., mm-hmm. uh, but the challenge itself and its teachers to uh, think about how they can leverage the resources within the community mm-hmm. in order to create the, uh, the outcomes that they're currently struggling to. All right. Well, last question, um, because we're running out of time. This is a little bit more of a personal question and either of you can start. So whoever feels most comfortable, I'm curious if either of you would go work for the other's organization. And if the answer is yes, what would you change about it? Don't both rush at once. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a, a stab at it. I, I, I um, the problem I'm trying to solve is something I, I care so deeply about that, that I feel as if it's it's uh, my life's mission to solve that, that problem. Uh, there have been hundreds uh, and thousands probably that, that have failed looking at a, at a similar problem. So I, I think I'd be, uh, uh, I think it'd be, it's ambitious to solve it in my lifetime already and, and, uh, and I don't know how many, uh, if, if I'm able to do it, I'll be ready to retire. If, if you didn't uh, whether, have Springboard Collaborative, would you go work for Alt? Whether it's whether whether uh, over time Springboard continues to be the the best path uh, that I see to solve that problem, mm-hmm. that may change. It may not be called Springboard. It, 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 the product line already is evolving, so who knows what it'll be called and what it'll look like. But um, but I want to in my time and in, in the world figure out how to how to close that gap and how to do it by engaging families. I don't expect uh, that, that I'll be looking for other jobs anytime soon, although I'm sure Alt School has competitive salaries and lovely benefits. That's not a yes or no answer, but we'll go to Max. I'm not going to let we'll you off the hook just no. yet. Max, what do you think? Would you go work for Springboard Collaborative? Well, I mean, again, it's rare. If someone's a founder and they kind of started something, it's it, it's in their blood to kind of follow it through and, and to keep starting things. I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in childhood literacy. I'm, I think that, you know, as something to volunteer for or something that we try out, you know, in, in schools down the line, it's super interesting. I, you know, I think that, um, in terms of things that I would change, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a technophile and, I, I, I'm overly optimistic about the possibility to kind of use leapfrog technologies. And so like, what if your mobile phone reminds you as a parent, like, isn't it time to read again? What if there's something that is listening to your interactions with your student in your house um, and giving you kind of that feedback? What if, you know, a kid had um, like a TV on in the house where, everything that their parent was saying was being transcribed in real time, like closed captioning style. What if closed captionings were required um, in the house of every student on their TV? Um, You know, things like that, where at the end of the day, technology is a Trojan horse to change behavior. It's not generally something worthwhile in and of itself, but I, I always, I always look there for, for easy wins. Alejandro, anything else you want to add? Just that when I'm out in the Bay Area, I'd, I'd love to, to meet up. I, we we started with the people, and, and now we're we're building more of the, the tech to help streamline what we're doing. Built built a system on, on Salesforce, and are now kind of adding in uh, texting a, as a, a way to build that communication. Long story short, would love to, to pick your brain, Max, about uh, ways that we can continue building that out. Any ideas that you have, and maybe there's there's some good uh, points of intersection as we grow our presence in the Bay Area. Sounds great. Nice to talk to you, Alejandro. 
All right, well, even though you don't want to work for each other's organizations, I'm glad that there's some exchange of information happening. Uh, well, thank you both for being on the podcast. And um, real quick, Alejandro, if people want to get more information about your organization, where should they visit? They can go to springboardcollaborative.org. And then Max, for you and Altschool? Altschool.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one. A big thanks to Max and Alejandro for hopping on the Google Hangout to chat with us this week, and also to Lisa Guernsey, Michael Levine, Sarah Valla, and all of the writers who contributed to EdSurge this week. Hey, administrators listening to this show, our concierge team wants to get you a list of EdTech tools that fit your specific needs. They'll schedule a call with you to discuss your need, generate a short list of promising tools, and get companies to respond with a proposal. You remain anonymous, so there are no cold calls or emails, and then you decide which companies to move forward with. And best of all, it's totally free. If this sounds interesting, head over to concierge.edsurge.com to get started. And finally, thank you to all of you for listening to our show. If you enjoyed this episode, well, we've got a lot more on our site. Interviews with EdTech celebrities like Linda of Lynda.com, discussions of philanthropy's role in education, an exploration of bioprinters, all there for your listening pleasure. Yeah, subscribe to our show, check out some of those earlier episodes, and let us know what you think. Okay, I'm Michael Winters. And I'm Mary Jo Mata. We will see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. Thank you.